0: Good morning to you. How many of you are familiar with good news, bad news jokes? There are some pretty good ones about pastors. I thought I'd share a few. The first one goes like this. The good news, pastor, is that the deacons voted to send you a get well card. The bad news is the vote only passed nine to eight. The good news is the elder board accepted your job description exactly as you wrote it. The bad news is they were so inspired by it, they formed a search committee to see if there's someone better to fill it. The good news is Mr. Jones is wild about your sermons. The bad news is Mr. Jones is also wild about the gong show, Howard the Duck and Police Academy 37, the final assault on humor. The good news is, church attendance has risen dramatically in these last three weeks, Pastor. The bad news is, you're now back from vacation. (laughs) Our passage today lays out some bad news, so we can arrive at the good news. And if all of this is news to you, then I hope you listen attentively to three slender verses, because it lays out the most important news you will ever hear. And so with that in mind, I'd invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. And if you don't have a copy of Scripture, please use one of ours in the Blue Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 should be found on page 12, 14. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, page 12, 14. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Lord, we thank you that uh, there are changes in seasons, and even as we're still technically still in summer, it feels quite a bit like the fall, that there's a crispness in all this. There is a a movement. Uh, It is not always oppressively hot, but it is also uh, refreshingly cool. We thank you for that. We thank you for the seasons in our lives. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your... Uh, spirit would refresh your people today through your word that you would take my words as uh, incomplete and uh, failing as they are that you would tie them to your word which is complete and unfailing and uh, though the heavens be rolled up as a scroll your word stands forever because thy word is truth it comes from the author of truth the one who is truth and we pray lord that your truth would wash over us that You would not get us through 1 Corinthians 6, but that You would get 1 Corinthians 6 through to us. Mold us and bend us and shape us around the truth of Your Word that we might be a people for Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As such, some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the bad news starts in our very first verse, and the bad news is point one on your outlines today, and it can be said this way. Number one, God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, therefore the unrighteous can have no part in it. I'll say that again. God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, therefore the unrighteous can have no part in it. The Bible doesn't beat around the bush in this, in the way our culture would, in the way many today would. The Bible just comes right out and says it. It says it plainly, boldly, and utterly unapologetically. Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now friends, this is only logical and it's entirely biblical. God's kingdom is an extension of His intention. God's kingdom is a reflection of His holy disposition. And so since God is holy, well, God's kingdom must be holy. Since God is a God of righteousness, God's kingdom must be a kingdom of, of righteousness. Anything less or anything else would be utterly illogical. Now, God's kingdom being a kingdom of righteousness is not just logical, it's also biblical. Romans 14.17, you might write it in your Bibles next to this passage. Romans 14.17 is very clear. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not all these rules, it's righteousness. Now what the New Testament affirms, the Old Testament confirms. Isaiah 9, 7 predicted this. Of the increase of His government, speaking of the Messiah, and peace there will be no end. And He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on forever and ever. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of Of righteousness. Jesus does not set the bar any lower in Scripture. In Matthew 5.33, Jesus tells us, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were considered scrupulous adherents to the minutia and the letter of the law. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. So we must know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so that brings a new question. Who's righteous? (laughs) Who's righteous? And who decides this? And what is the standard that we should be looking at? And that brings us to point two on our outlines. Point two on our outlines today is this Unrighteousness is determined by the righteous one's righteous standard. Unrighteousness is determined by the righteous one's righteous standard, not the culture and not our personal opinion righteousness is determined by the righteous one's righteous standard and not the culture or our personal opinion. Let me ask you a question. Who is in a better position to answer this question on what is righteous? Who is in a better position to answer this question? An all-wise, all-knowing, holy God or corrupted creatures who excel at self-justification in virtually any and every decision? Who would be in a better position? Well, would a, a righteous being utterly uncorrupted by sin and untaintable by temptation be a better arbiter for the standard of righteousness? Or, or would fallen creatures with fallen natures who now crave the very things to which they're enslaved, would they be in a better position than God to make this decision? Now logically, the answer is clear, isn't it? It's not really a question, it's a rhetorical question. Only a a holy God, a being who is truth, would would know the truth, would would tell the truth, would, would, would be the best arbiter and decider of truth regarding what is truly righteous. But we live in a day where you and I each believe that we, are personally the deciders of our own truth. And if those truths, beliefs, conflict, we are sternly told not to contradict another's edict, for tolerance is now a higher value than logical coherence. Because it's crazy to say that every opinion is equal if they disagree. Two and two is either five, or it's four, or it's three, but it's not all of those, right? But that's the world we live in today. Now, if someone is so bold to let it be told that there is a way, and that way is the way, others are quick to say we disagree. And we have numerical superiority, and so you need to be quiet, because clearly you're in the minority. But does the individual always know what is true? And just because we see something a certain way, does that really make it reality? What if we all see something together we see it does that necessarily make it more certain and better or is something true because it's true and it doesn't really matter what someone else or everyone together says about it philosophers long ago grappled with this question and going at least as far back as the greek skeptic Pyrrho, philosophers have provided an illustration that offers A limitation to our question in this situation. Have you ever been to a creek or a lake? You've stood on the side, you've stood on the shore, and there's the water, and you've taken a long stick and you've set it into the creek. What will happen? What happens is when you stand on the surface, on the outside looking in, and you look at the point where the stick strikes the water, you see very clearly that the stick all of a sudden looks bent at the point of entry. It always does. But the stick is not bent. Never for a second is the stick ever bent. It's a misjudgment because of our imperfect perspective on the side of that riverbank. Now, if you had a hundred people come stand with you at that riverbank and you said, hey, I've got a straight stick, do you see it? And they all say I sure do. Like a broomstick straight. I'm going to stick that in the river. What's going to happen? Nothing. You stick it in the river, and as soon as you do, you say, what does it look like at the point where it strikes the river? And a hundred people will tell you the same thing. The stick looks bent. But is that stick bent, friend? Never for a second is the stick bent. So the perception of the individual and the cold comfort of the crowd does not always lead us to the truth. The truth is the stick is still utterly straight and it is our perception that is bent. Now why is this? Well, we have a slide for that. If you remember your high school physics, <laughs> you don't, uh, you are experiencing refraction in this interaction and the scientists can explain what the philosophers merely pointed to. If you are not paying attention to high school physics, you know, shame on you and join the club. Here's what you missed. Refraction occurs when light goes through a water surface. And since water has a refractive index of 1.33, and air has a refractive index of just one, when our eyes see that stick in the refractive water, it appears what it is not. It appears bent because of refraction. So our eyes lie, in what is actually straight appears crooked. And the problem is our perception of reality. It is not reality itself. Now, friends, the God of nature is the God of Scripture. So if the God of Scripture declares something straight and something else crooked, that's reality. That's reality. Full stop. That's reality. Now, if I disagree, and even if I get every other creature to disagree along with me, that doesn't change reality, does it? Any more than my pleading about sticks in creeks being crooked doesn't ever, for a second, make the stick crooked. Theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. That's your $5 word for the day, noetic effect of sin. And the noetic effect of sin comes from the Greek word for mind, how sin darkens our mind, and it's the word nous, hence noetic. The noetic effect of sin is this As a result of the fall in Genesis 3, sin darkens the mind of us all. We don't always see the straight stick, we see things with a bent. And what's straight we call crooked, and what's crooked we call. We see this truth taught in a number of places in Scripture. That's why it's such a clear doctrine, the noetic effect of sin. We see this in Ephesians 4:17. I invite you to turn there with me. Ephesians 4:17 is to the right of 1 Corinthians 6. It's on page 12,44. Ephesians 4:17, page 12,44. Speaking of the noetic effect of sin, the word of God says in Ephesians 4:17, "Now I, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Something's happened in the mind of the unbeliever." Verse 18 tells us what happened. The noetic effect of sin happened. They are darkened in their understanding. They don't have a clear picture of what real reality is any longer. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God. So this is a moral twisting, not just a rational twisting. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That is, they do not receive the truth or have not experienced the truth. Why? Because they're dummies? Because of the hardness of their... So you can have nine PhDs and still be utterly darkened in the futility of your mind. Amen? You can write the textbook on refraction and still see a lot of crooked sticks where God says they're straight. Amen? They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and they have given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy practices and to every kind of impurity so you decide you're not going to listen and then you can't hear and this moral pull is a magnet to the things that are going to wreak havoc in your life I want you to turn to another passage of scripture it's a little lengthier but it's much clearer I want you to turn to Romans 118 Romans 118 is to the left of Corinthians it's on page 1195 1195 is Romans chapter 1 And we'll go from verse 18 to verse 32. It's the Bible's most detailed explanation of the noetic effect of sin. Romans 1.18, the Word of God says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became, and here it is, they became futile in their thinking. The noetic effect of sin. And their foolish hearts were darkened. See, we didn't understand. We couldn't perceive. And that led us to greater darkness. Our foolish hearts. There's a a linkage between our foolish mind and our foolish hearts. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. And exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images, for idols, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We we had an understanding there's a God. God made us in His image. We started returning the favor and making things supposedly in His image. What happens when we do that? What happens when we say, I'm going I'm to do it my way, we're going to Frank Sinatra our life, we're going we're to not say what God says is straight is straight, and what God says is crooked is crooked, and we're going to make our own arbiter of truth. Well, what happens is then something happens in my heart, and then something happens between God and me, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. You want to run this way? You don't want to run the straight way? Go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passages, uh, to passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for, for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this was their critical mistake, they didn't put God in the proper place and let Him be the arbiter of truth, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice, and they're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful and inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Sounds a little bit like us, doesn't it? Though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice these things deserve the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death, they not only do them, but they give approval of others who do them. It's not enough to say, I participate in some of these things, but I celebrate when others participate in that which I won't do. And here's the good news, friends. Remember we said we had to tell you the bad news to get to the good news? The good news is, Jesus came to fix this. Jesus came to fix this. What sin has darkened, the light of Christ can illuminate. In John 12, 46, Jesus tells us, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. This is the commission the Apostle Paul received when he was saved. It's recorded in Acts 26, beginning at verse 15. And Paul said, Who are You, Lord? When he was blinded on the Damascus road. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you, Paul, as a servant and a witness to the things in which you've seen in me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, now here it is, to open their eyes to open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness and go towards light and from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sin and the place of those sanctified by faith in me. That was Paul's commission. Make the blind see. Those who have had their minds darkened, show them the light of Christ. And they will be changed beings through faith in Jesus Christ. No other way. Not through self-help. Not through psychology. Not through trying harder. Not through religion. Through faith in the righteous one. It's the only way you can be made righteous. So what is the righteous one's righteous standard? And it's very simple. It's this. It's holiness. But those in first century Corinth, Satan made his painful graveyard looked like an idyllic playground. And Satan's very cunning. He's more crafty than any beast of the field. So standing in Corinth, where Paul is writing this, Satan made his painful graveyard with the wreckage and carnage of sin all around. He made it look like an amusement park. Only the Word of God were true today. Now, you see, Corinth was world famous for its immorality. Folks came from all over the Roman Empire to experience the licentious sensuousness uniquely on offer at pagan Corinth. When you arrived at Corinth by the sea, for it was a harbor town, you saw rising like a beacon some 1,900 feet above you to the south of the city was a commanding sanctuary. It filled up the space. It caught your eye. It glittered like something shiny you couldn't avoid. And this temple had a thousand priestesses who served as, as sacred prostitutes and they were called Heriodulai. And they were selected because they were considered some of the most beautiful women in all of the Roman Empire. And each night, these, these Heriodulai, these thousand priestesses, would descend that mountain. And they would come down into the city and they would offer their priestly services of prostitution to the citizens and the many foreign visitors who came here for that purpose. But in addition to this powerful temple of Aphrodite, There was also the temple of Apollo at Corinth. Now Apollo was the god of music and song and poetry, and he was seen to be the the ideal of male beauty. And there were nude statues of Apollo uh, in various poses all throughout uh, Corinth, and that was to inspire the the, the worshiper of Apollo towards the priests of Apollo who who were really male prostitutes. And that was how you worship this deity. And so ancient Corinth was was the epicenter of of homosexuality within the Roman Empire. And so to a city soaked to the saturation in sin, in any flavor you wanted it in, Paul minces no words today, friends. Verse 9, For do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now friends, this was not how their culture saw things, was it? This was not how the culture saw life. The whole point of going to Corinth was to go to live it up. The culture would say, Paul, that's not sin, that's love. That's not unrighteousness. That's a night of, of riotous raucousness. Learn to live a little, will you? In regards to, to homosexuality, the Scripture uses two words in this passage, uh, malakoi and uh, arsenokoi tie. Now malakoi sort of means to be soft to the touch. In Matthew eleven eight, 8, is used to describe the soft clothing worn in king's palaces. And and here it seems to refer to men who are deliberately soft to the touch. They're sort of deliberately effeminate as a signal uh, for potential partners. Now both malakoi and arsenokotoi are rather graphic terms in the original Greek that I'll I'll spare you what they mean, but they both speak of specific homosexual acts. Not really an orientation or proclivity, but, but activity, and that's important to understand. All of this list, from the, from the sexually immoral to the thieves to the, to the drunkards, it all speaks of active, willful participation. Not some passive temptation. Not that you're tempted to be greedy. Not that you're tempted uh, towards this kind of immorality or that kind of immorality. But that you're actively participating. You're, you're saying, I choose this activity. That's important because the fact that we're tempted is a given in Scripture, isn't it? It's the giving over of ourselves to temptation that's forbidden. It's not forbidden to be tempted. We're all going to be tempted. Jesus was tempted in all points, and yet he was without sin. So I don't know what you're tempted with, but don't confuse temptation with with the situation. The situation is when you say, I want to run headlong towards this. I also want you to know that this is what many Christians in Corinth, they were, they were. They were these things. They're not are these things, they were these things. But now the Bible says they were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified. And so Scripture in this passage talking about who goes to heaven and who doesn't go to heaven does not have in mind people who are tempted. And it doesn't have in mind the people who see the error of their ways and they've now repented. No, the Scripture issues this stern warning and it's limited to those who willfully continue in these wicked ways. They glory in them. This is what life is about. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit so moves the pen of Paul to write these words. Listen, don't be deceived about this. Don't be deceived. There's a party going on over here. He makes a graveyard look like an amusement park. And when you enter, it's all lights and whistles and cupid dolls and wonderful and whoosh of the ride and whoo! And nobody leaves the park alive. And nobody leaves the park unscathed, do they? The Hotel California, you can check in anytime you like, but you can never... Yeah. Don't be deceived about this. Young people, don't be deceived about this. You feel invincible and bulletproof. That's the beauty of being young. You're not. Look at those old people. That was you. And fast forward. That'll be you. They were once invincible. They went to the amusement park and they got a crick in their neck when the ride twisted too fast. Most of the items mentioned in verses 9 and 10 were not considered sinful by the wider Greco-Roman culture. This isn't how the culture understood morality. Morality. But this list was perfectly in keeping of God's standard from the Old Testament, even though it was utterly divergent from the culture standard at the moment. You see, you can go back to the Old Testament, and the same moral God who gave moral commands gave those same commands in the New Testament. God had warned about drunkenness all the way back in Proverbs. God had warned about greed and adultery and theft. Those are some of the Ten Commandments. God had warned against homosexual activity in Leviticus. But the Greco-Roman world did not find these things to be sinful. They were simply lifestyles that you could pursue to be happy. Drunkenness was expected at a Roman banquet. You went to a Roman banquet, you were expected to get drunk. And and greed is what drove commerce. And, And Corinth was a pulsating city, vibrant with commerce. And you know what? Swindling was the way you made more money in commerce. It was a standard ancient business practice. That's why the Bible has to say so often, don't... Don't use unjust weights. You don't say, this. I'm going to give you a pound of rice. And you actually give them half a pound because your scale's incorrect. The Bible says reviling. Don't be into reviling. Well, that's, that's just what you did at a party. To revile was to, was, to, was to flap your gums and give salacious gossip. To keep your rival in their place and, and to secure your place in the pecking order, you've got to tear others down so you can be built it up. That was to be reviling. Uh, Sexual immorality was the norm. We've already said they visited heterosexual and homosexual prostitutes as part of the worship of the local deities. It was in the very fabric of that society. So blasé was the culture regarding sexuality that the great Athenian statesman, a man named Demosthenes, who wrote much earlier than Paul, way back then, Demosthenes wrote this, quote, "...we have mistresses for pleasure, concubines to care for our daily body needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. That's how the culture viewed the home. Regarding prevailing Greco-Roman sentiment regarding homosexuality, the culture was very accepting of that situation. Historians tell us that the great philosopher Socrates engaged in homosexuality. Uh, Classical scholars tell us that Plato's dialogue in the symposium, which is said to be one of the greatest works on love, is not an ode to heterosexual love, but but homosexual love. And you've ever heard the term platonic love? Well, Plato never said that. (laughs) Plato meant sexual love, and he meant it probably heterosexual. No, he meant it probably homosexual love. Uh, Suetonius is is an ancient writer who, who gives us the history of the Roman Empire. And Suetonius, in a work called The Lives of Caesar, tells us that when Paul wrote this letter about the same time as Corinthians is being written, the emperor Nero is about to marry a boy named Sporus in an incident bizarre only because of its formality. Because we're told that 14 of the 15 first Roman emperors were either homosexual or at least bisexual. Friends, the culture didn't have any problem with any of these things. And before we tut t- about Greco-Roman culture, are we any different today? Whether it's greed or idolatry or lust. If you had to ask people, what's a sin today? You know, our list is infinitesimal. Perhaps the only two things we could find in agreement if you went to a, a baseball stadium or a, a football arena and said, name two sins. The two things that would come up would be intolerance and harming the environment. And after that, no one would agree. Right? That's about all we've got. But friends, we must remember that, that unrighteousness is determined by the righteous one's righteous standard. It is not determined by the culture or our personal opinion. And so against a sea of cultural acceptance, God's Word bluntly, clearly, and jarringly says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I want us to pause for just a second here. Just as the church struggled in decades past to consider how do we minister to our divorced brothers and sisters, and we didn't always get that so right in the 60s and 70s and 80s, I think it's appropriate to pause here and consider how do we minister to our homosexual friends and neighbors because I'm not sure we always get it right today. God's Word is clear that homosexuality is not merely an alternative lifestyle. The Bible calls homosexual activity a sin. But you know what? It also calls heterosexual activity outside of the marriage bed a, a sin. Any sexual activity outside of God's design is not permitted. But I want you to know that, that the homosexual struggle with the temptation towards that particular sin, that's not a sin. That's a temptation. We are never castigated for being tempted or how we're being tempted. But we are accountable for what we do when we're tempted. You with me? God loves homosexuals just as much as He does every other sinner. Amen? That was a very weak amen. Try that again. God loves homosexuals just as much as He loves every other sinner. But Jesus' death on the cross, it paid for the sin of homosexuality just like every other sin, amen? Just as much as it pays for lust and greed and theft and murder, the good news is the church of Jesus Christ ought to be a place where any person caught up in any sin can be freed and forgiven in Jesus. Remember, what's the title of our series through this book? God's messy grace project turning worldly sinners of all stripes into heavenly saints. God's messy grace turning worldly sinners into heavenly saints applies just as much for the the homosexual struggler as it does for the heterosexual philanderer. There's space for grace in whatever your struggle is. But we also have to be careful to not condone the practice and yet to still love the person who's struggling. Do you you follow? Because the church either goes one way or the other. We either beat down people we should share Jesus with and run away from them, or or we just say everything's fine and we'll do whatever it takes so you're here. We'll put a flag out front so you feel welcome, as long as God isn't welcome. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Nobody said being a Christian is going to be easy, right? What did they do to our founder? Well, they crucified him before they glorified him. We must be careful while not condoning the practice to still love the people caught up in the practice. They need Jesus. Homosexuals are not to be feared, church, and they're not to be hated. They're to be evangelized. They can have their lives transformed by the grace of Jesus just as surely as you did. Amen? Friends, homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. But it is a sin. And so sinners need the Savior. Remember, the Apostle Paul who wrote this was a murderer. And then the Spirit of God and the grace of God, by putting his faith in God, it changed him from a murderer to a missionary. Now Jesus Christ, when standing before the religious authorities who thought their breath always smelled like roses, they thought they had it all together, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. You wanted to get there through your own tidiness. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe the word of God. And even after you saw this, you didn't repent and believe. You know the only way to get to heaven? It's through Jesus. You have to repent of your sin and believe in God's Son. That's the only way. That's the only way. That's the only way. So I don't know what proclivity towards iniquity the enemy routinely tempts you with. But for the Corinthians, Satan had set a sumptuous trap. He tried to catch everybody. To the sexually tempted, Paul calls out heterosexual promiscuity in naming the sexually immoral. And marital infidelity in naming the adulterer. And homosexual activity in naming men who practice homosexuality. And to the commercially tempted, the list speaks of idolaters right alongside adulterers. Same problem, same need for Jesus. The thieves who steal overtly. And the swindlers who steal covertly. And the greedy who don't steal anything but wish they could. To the party crowd, he calls out the drunkards. To the haughty and mighty, he calls out the revilers who lived through their abusive slander saying they were better. Paul didn't miss anybody because sin affects everybody. Now some sins are in the heart like greed and idolatry. Some sins are in the practice like drunkenness and adultery. And you and I are somewhere in this list, amen? We are. That brings us to point three. All of us, after Adam's fall, fail to meet God's right and righteous standards. All of us, after Adam's fall, Genesis 3, failed to meet God's right and righteous standards. No one standing in God's grace, no one who was hearing this letter, no one received grace because they earned it. Because definitionally, grace can't be earned. It can only be given. It's unmerited favor. In fact, it's really interesting. Paul says many of the people reading this letter used to be trapped in these very sins. Listen again to verse 11, and listen to the hope that's in verse 11. As such, some of you were. There were people in their church that were full of greed and swindlers and cheaters and adulterers and idolaters and homosexuals. And some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, the Old Testament is clear on this point, that all of us, after Adam's fall, will we all fail to meet God's righteous and right standard. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. The New Testament says the same thing in Romans 3.23. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Which brings us to point four on our outlines. Any of us, any of us, I don't care who you are today, I don't care what you've done, any of us can be made righteous in God's eyes by Christ's atoning work on our behalf. Any of us can be made right in God's eyes through Christ's atoning work on our behalf. Look at verse 11. As such, some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. wash That's whatever our previous sinful condition, we are made clean through regeneration. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ Jesus. Not counting men's sins against them. Forgiveness in Jesus. Now we're not just washed clean, this passage tells us. The Bible tells us we're set apart. That's what the word sanctified means. To be set apart for what? For holiness. For holiness. Behold, we are made new. We are new creatures given new natures. And so yes, the pull of the old nature will still be present until I go to heaven. But I also have a new nature that makes me want to live to please the Savior. And I didn't used to have that. And sometimes those natures are at war. But thank God there's a war because it used to just be a white flag of surrender. Remember, friends, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but through the atoning work of Jesus, we can be made righteous. That's what it means to be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. To be justified means to be declared righteous. God looks at you, and in His perfect sentence, He looks at you, and He doesn't say sinner who deserves to be judged. He says, innocent. Not guilty. Forgiven. Pardon. The slate is clean. In fact, it's not only clean, it doesn't have a deficit, it has an immeasurable amount of credit. The infinite righteousness of Christ stands in my account. And the infinite righteousness of Christ is more than the finite sin of Sean, no matter how sinful Sean is. Infinite is always bigger than finite. To be justified means to be declared righteous before the living God. Now, most of the Corinthians came, friends, from an exceedingly wicked pagan world when they met Jesus. They were deeply steeped in the rampant vices of their corrupted culture. But now they were different because God had done a work in their life. And so, friends, it doesn't matter what you were before you walked through the doors of Calvary Church. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're now washed. You're now sanctified. You're now justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Some of you know about a professor named Dr. Christopher Yuan, and he's taught at the Moody Bible Institute for over a decade, Dr. Yuan. And he was once a very different man before he taught Bible for 10 years at Moody. In his 20s, he got utterly swept up by the world, and he happened to get swept up into the gay lifestyle. And owing to his wild partying, he got expelled from dental school four months from graduation. Four years of intensive work, thrown away four months before he graduated. So he needed money. So what did he do? He took up a new occupation. He became a very successful drug dealer. And he just took his party scene and monetized that. And uh, he writes, I felt invincible. You know, he's in his 20s, he's making all kinds of money, and every day's a party. He's in the amusement park, he's riding the ride. It's a good time. But he wasn't invincible. One day, 12 DEA agents knocked on his front door, and he had a massive amount of drugs behind him when the door opened, and he went to jail. And in jail, very quickly, he was slipped a note from the prison uh, medical department. He has HIV. He did not know that. And so, lying back on his bunk, looking up at the bunk on top of him, someone had scribbled this word If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29 11. I have plans for you, right? So he got a Bible in prison with HIV, lost his reputation, lost his education, lost everything. And he began to read the Bible. And over the course of a year, sitting in prison, he eventually realized that Jesus is the Savior. And he surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christopher, when he asked Christ to be his Lord, he wrote, I knew I no longer was going to live according to my ways and according to the ways of the world but surrendering all my hopes and dreams to Jesus. And as this relationship with God grew in a prison, Christopher struggled to find justification for his homosexual lifestyle. And he writes this, quote, I turned to the Bible alone, and I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture, looking for justification for my homosexuality. But I never found anything. So I was at a turning point. This says after he's saved, he's got to decide if he wants to live sanctified. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. It was either abandon God and His Word to live as a homosexual by allowing my feelings to dictate who I was, or abandon homosexuality by liberating myself from my feelings and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I chose God. Now, Christopher no longer defines himself by his sexuality. Dr. Yuan explains, quote, My identity as a child in God must be in Jesus Christ alone. I read passages in Scripture which told me, Be holy, for I am holy. I had always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But then I realized the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. God was telling me, don't focus upon feelings. Don't focus upon my sexuality. Focus upon living a life of holiness, living a life of purity. Christopher humbly admits, being a Christian is not an easy thing. Can you relate to that? He says, I I may still struggle, but God has given me grace. God has claimed the victory on the cross, and though I still have struggles... I'm not going to be bound by them. Which brings us to our final point today, point five on our outlines. Point five on your outlines. In Christ, who we were does not define who we now are, nor who we can be through the Spirit's work in us. In Christ, who we were does not define who we now are, nor who we can be through the Spirit's power In us. The Bible says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you understand the power available to the Christian to live victoriously? The Bible says we're now able to do something incredible through His Spirit living in us. Philippians 2.14, you might want to write it down in your Bibles here. Philippians 2.14 says, We can become blameless and pure children of God without faults in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. The devil says, you can't shine for Jesus. Not you. That person might, but not you. You've been in this muck, and this yuck, and this mud for so long. This is where you belong. But God's Word says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, one of those voices is right, and one of those voices is a liar. The devil says, hey, friend, no. This is your identity. This is who you must be. This is your authentic and true self. You are defined by your orientation or your addiction or your affliction. But God's Word says this in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who's called us by His own glory and goodness, through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. So says Ephesians 4.20, Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to His power who's at work within us. To Him, Be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so, if you are here today and you desperately want the power of God to make you an overcomer, as Jesus promises in Revelation, instead of being overcome and undone, you can be remade through the Spirit of God. But for that to happen, you need to be reborn through the Son of God. If you understand that the bad news is true, that you and I are sinners and we need a Savior, and and, and you're ready to reach out in faith to trust in that Savior, the only name under heaven by which we may be saved, the name of Jesus, Yeshua. It means Savior. Behold unto you in the town of David, a Savior has been born. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to encourage you to pray with me today. If you've reached the point where you recognize that you've bought the ticket to the amusement park, but you can't get out and the ride isn't fun anymore, that you're spinning and spinning and spinning and you're more and more sick, and you've seen others fall off the ride and they didn't get back up, I want to invite you to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. You give your life to Him and ask Him to change you and make you into a child of God with a new nature and a new destiny. If you want to do that, your prayer can be expressed like this in the quietness of your heart right now. You can pray to Jesus. He's listening. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned against You and I'm tired of running my own show. Lord, I need You. I believe that Jesus is just who you say He is in the Bible. He is fully God and fully man. He was tempted in all points and yet without sin. And I believe that Jesus died for my sin and that He rose again on the third day to show that sin and death and hell itself have no hold on the author of life. Take my life, Lord, and show me the way that I may walk from this day forward in such a way to bring you glory and those around me much good. I ask this in the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.